One of the things that is uh, it's kind of really popular right now, if, I'm sure if you haven't noticed, is uh, the, the superhero movies, like the Marvel and, uh, you know, DC and, like, all those things. And, and the thing that is uh, interesting about all of those stories is usually uh, those stories begin uh, kind of with someone who is very weak or someone who is very frail or has some sort of disability or handicap. Uh, and it's a, it's kind of a, uh, they begin with a coming of age sort of story where this person either discovers their abilities or is given abilities or they have a special suit that gives them powers or some sort of uh, thing. And, and the way that they learn to operate with these abilities is, is through experience and practice. And um, it takes a little bit of uh, learning uh, that they are not as weak as they originally were thinking that they were. And uh, they've been charged up. And, and the reason that these uh, stories that are really interesting to us, that they're appealing to us, is not just because they're entertaining, but because every person wants to be seen in that light. They want to discover that this is who they actually are. The reason that these things resonate with us is because we say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had the ability to, to fly or if we had the ability to uh, have superhuman strength and like we could just do whatever we wanted, right? This is why one of the questions that you end up asking or, uh, over the course of your life uh, to other people is like, okay, if you had one superpower, what could it be, right? No one is ever like, I wish I could do my taxes on time every year. Like that's just not the superpower you wish for. You wish for something else. You're not like, I wish that I was super organized and I could have an amazing filing system. Those are not the things that we wish for. We wish for these things that overcome our, our deficiencies in life. They overcome the things that, that we are just innately bad at. And this is why when we see these movies, they're, they're interesting to us because we think, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, you know, that's, that's, the, the feats that are performed are, are superhuman. But as we come to the text this morning, we find that what uh, Paul's emphasis to Timothy here, a young man, perhaps a dreamer in this same fashion, uh, looking at, wow, like the world is so big and so much ahead of me, uh, maybe a little bit intimidated in his time and place, he is given some instructions about how he is to live. And one of these instructions is to live out of uh, who you are in Christ. To live out of that and to operate and to act with that mindset, that attitude. Earlier in the book, uh, Paul tells Timothy, uh, his, his young apprentice, his Padawan, if you will, uh, he tells him, look, here's the deal. Let no one despise your youth. Use it as an asset instead. He's like, you should, you should not be afraid of it. You should not uh, shrink back from opportunities because of your youth, but rather you should use it as an asset. You should use it for God's glory. And now he comes here to remind him again of his ability to operate in his position in the gospel. Now, we start here, uh, I just want to highlight for you a couple things before we get to our, the bulk of our text, but we find here that the first thing that uh, Paul charges Timothy with here in verse 3 is that there is a right doctrine and a wrong doctrine. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
right? So that is what a different doctrine looks like. It's not just like, oh, we have a difference of like how baptism works, right? That's not what he's talking about. It's not a secondary issue that we've talked about before, but these are primary issues. If someone is disagreeing with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, then they are coming, and what are they doing in that moment? If someone disagrees with Jesus, they're saying, my opinion, my word, my desire to live in the way that I want, or the way to tell you to live in the way that I want you to live, is higher, it's more important than Christ, than his words. He has said to live this way, I tell you, live instead this way. And Paul says, if someone is telling you that they are instead uh, exalting themselves above Christ, and they're in fact teaching a different doctrine, he goes on to explain it this way. In verse 4, he said, this type of person is puffed up with conceit. That's what they're saying. They're proud. They are conceited. They are saying that they are more powerful than Jesus, which is a stupid statement to make. If you believe that you are uh, more authoritative, if you are more powerful than Christ, you are puffed up with conceit. And it says this, you understand nothing. Because Jesus, what Paul gets at here in a moment, is the end all, the be all, what we are all ultimately after. Our souls ultimately crave Christ. And so he says Christ is the end, Christ is the goal. He is the one who we look to. He is our Savior, our Lord. He's the head of the church. He's who we are ultimately uh, wanting to know and enjoy. We don't just want to be like Jesus, but we want to be with Jesus. We want to see him and enjoy him. But then he goes on to say, uh, to contrast it and say, if he's the goal, then his words are the highest words that we will ever, we will ever look to. No one can be higher. And then he says this, but there are some people who are chasing other things that are higher than, that they believe to be higher. And they want to cause these, these problems. They want to have these quarrels and fights and controversies. But then one of the things that he gets to is this, being content with knowing and enjoying Christ. Being content with knowing and enjoying Christ. If you look here, he contrasts this with those who are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What he says by that, or what he means by that, is that some people are operating in a way where they're acting godly in order to get other things besides God. They're using it as a platform to be perceived, to be seen, to be respected uh, for some way in order to get something else, to receive something else besides God. But what the gospel says is that the only thing that's worth chasing after is Jesus. And so you cannot use You cannot use God as a means to an end. He is the end. And so Paul, he stretches out his uh, point here. He says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. So there's these things that he says, you can have great gain. It's not that uh, imagining that godliness is, is a means of gain, but rather there is gain in godliness, but it's that Jesus is the goal. That Jesus is what we are after. If we, uh, he says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
And so he's beginning to contrast what it means to, to store up riches here upon the earth and what it means to store up treasures in heaven. Now, let's talk second for a second about heaven. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about heaven. And this is often where we go off the rails and we start thinking about godliness with contentment and gain and, and what do we get. And one of the ways that there are people who are imagining that they're going to have great gain, and I think there's a temptation for us to fall into this, is that we have a perspective that heaven is just like the cartoons, right? Have you ever watched cartoons? You get up there and then it's like kind of like the, the nice cobblestone streets that are pretty clean and you got the nice gate that, uh, there that's like all shiny and sparkly and then there's like the one like uh, little angel guy who's like laying on his side there with like a little pillow and he's got like this like really har- like weird harp that looks impossible to play in that position so you know that's not real. Uh, and and th- there's like this whole scene and uh looks like basically like you're walking down like main street in disneyland that looks just the entire thing looks fake and a lot of times this is how we we perceive it to be that's how it starts for us as as uh when we start to think about heaven but then as the more that you go into life the more that you uh experience things in life your your view of heaven ends up turning out to be whatever it is that you want to to experience most and what you want to be relieved from. So you say, oh, well, when I'm in heaven, there will be, there will be, uh, you know, no homework. It'll be great. I don't have to write papers. I don't have to worry about going to sleep or being tired. You start to just make it the reverse of whatever it is. And you start to think, oh, well, I can't have that here, so I must be able to have that there. All the things that are bad on earth that I'm not allowed to do, I can do them there because they will be in the perfect spot. And I can have all of those things. And, you know, maybe here it's bad to have, you know, to be greedy and have a big house. But the Bible does say I could have like a really big house, right? Or I'm going to get all of these great things when I get to heaven. And these are oftentimes the promises that we believe or the promises that uh, people tell us that when you are... Uh, going to heaven or you, you uh, in the afterlife, you will receive this, this bounty of all of these, these great things. And that's the reason why you want to do good. But the truth of the matter is, and the trajectory of scripture, is that heaven is always spoken of as the place where God dwells. The, the frills of it are not really like as important. We get the original glimpse of this uh, right in... Um, not the original glimpse, but like a very clear glimpse of this in the, the framework of the tabernacle. They had these uh, angelic beings that were kind of woven into the tapestry, and, and there's these levels of God's glory, and this is where God's people always wanted to get to. They wanted to get to God, and in that room, it's just a big empty room with just the Ark of the Covenant. It was where they would have a relationship with God. There wasn't like a mini version of a mansion in there, and like, you know, a sweet jacuzzi, uh, you know, there wasn't like a, a huge pile of food in there so that way it could symbolize that. No, none of that was there. It's, a, it's, a, it's an empty room with just the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt. And this was to make it clear that he is who we are wor- worshiping. He is who we are after. He is the goal of heaven. And so that was their symbolic of heaven upon earth. God's people wanting to constantly make it there, but yet being met at the door of the tabernacle saying, you're not a high priest, you can't come near. 
You can't, you can't enter in here. You don't belong here. You're not holy. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holiest place, that they're even keeping the priests who had kept the sacrifices out and only allowing the high priest to enter in one time a year. One time. And so that there also a way for keeping people out. And so it is through the cross that we find that Jesus, the ultimate mediator, who tears, who sees the veil torn in two at his death, at the declaration that his work is finished, it is finished, it is accomplished, paying for our sin, paying for our uh, our foolishness, our idolatrous desires. All of those things Christ pays for at the cross, cleansing us when we trust in him for salvation, and instead says, now you may come near, because I have made a way for you to draw near. I have given you entrance into, into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is. And so we have now access to God, not a pile of treasure. And so when we think about the holiness, the holy place, when we think about the heavenlies, we think that this is what Paul is getting at. That there is great gain to be had, and it is not in physical resources. He says we've come into the world with nothing, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He then finishes in verse 10, uh, this little section saying, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He says, this pursuit of these treasures, this is what the problem is. And then he uh, finishes with this exhortation, this explanation for us. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the, the trap, the lure of the enemy, this promise of treasure, the promise of getting something, using God as a means to an end. But then we come to the mindset in which he wants to instill in Timothy and that he wants to remind Timothy of. He says this to Timothy. Timothy, you're already rich. What he's wanting him to understand and what he's wanting us to understand is not that we need to get treasures, that we need to chase after riches, but that we already are in Christ. We've already put on Christ. We already belong to him when we trust in Christ for salvation. That we're already in. That we are these people who are like the superheroes who already have the power. That it doesn't belong to us. It's God's power working within us. We don't need to go out and chase after it and discover and train it, but it's God's power. And it's more than superpower because it's a new life, a new, a new uh, creation that God creates within us. And so here's how he explains it. And it's important that we understand what Paul does here because in order that that, that power that he gives us is not super uh, power in order to give us abilities, but rather to give us the ability to live for his glory, the filling of the Holy Spirit to empower us to live for God. So here we go. Verse 11. Here is what Paul writes to our young friend Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now you and I look at this and we're like, oh yeah, that's like nice that he was just gave him like a little straightforward thing to do. 
But here Paul starts him out with this mindset, changing his mind, changing the way that he thinks about himself. He says this to Timothy, knowing the challenges that Timothy will face, knowing what is ahead, he says this, but as for you, man of God. Now that doesn't mean anything to us, but in the Old Testament, this title was reserved for prophets. Elijah, a man of God. Elisha, a man of God. Right? These are, the, these are prophets who were given this title, who spoke on behalf of God, who had this great power in leading the nation, who influenced uh, culture for God's glory. And nobody in the New Testament is called this. Nobody in the New Testament is called this, except for Timothy. He's the only guy here. And earlier, he, he says, Oh, Timothy, like, don't let anybody despise your youth. Right? So he already knows that Timothy is kind of like this guy. He's like, oh, I hope I make it through this. And here Paul comes out and calls him, but you, oh man of God. What Paul's trying to do is say, I see this in you. I see what the Lord is doing. I'm calling you what you are before you arrive there because I see that he will complete the work that he has begun in you. He will be faithful to complete it. And you're not there yet, Timothy, but you will be. Keep going. This is the idea that there is a a belief about who he is before he begins to behave in this manner. Right? We've talked about this many times before. This changes everything. This changes everything about how you act. You have the belief, and then your behavior follows. We've, we've said that there are instances where you could be uh, kind of loosely involved with with a group or you could loosely be involved with an event and you're kind of doing the work and kind of like on the outskirts and hoping you don't get in trouble. But as soon as, soon as somebody gives you the name badge that says like supervisor, you're like, all right, everyone. All of a sudden you start like, you start charging, you know, telling people what to do and getting it together and trying to really command the room because now you have the authority. You see it. You're like, I got a badge right here. Nothing's really changed except for you now believe that you're in charge. Everybody else could have believed it before as long as you were being the vocal one. But now you've, you have a name. You have, you have something that says you're in charge. And this is what Paul is trying to get at with Timothy. He's like, Timothy, you are a man of God. So step up and let's do this. Let's get to work. And so he tells him this. Because you are this man of God, because this is where you're going, he says, I want to protect you. He says, flee these things. Paul tells Timothy, you have to be different from those who live in the secular world around you. You cannot be brought in by riches. You cannot be brought in by the material wealth of the world. You cannot be uh, swayed by these things. Because these, the world brings these false promises. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes... And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These are the promises that the world gives us. These fleshly desires. We look at things, oh, that's shiny, that's nice, that's new. Or they make false promises about uh, you know, about our lives. Oh, you, you should act this certain way because you're at this certain level and you should, you, you have the, you're entitled to this. But 
John tells us that these things are of the world. These desires of the flesh, they go after things that do not satisfy. These desires of our eyes, we look around, we, want, we see things that we want, that we covet. They make us unsatisfied with what God has already given us. And then when we can't have them, we have this pride and say, oh, well, I deserve that. It is a lie. And John tells us, the world is passing away along with its desires. These things will never satisfy it. They won't last. It will end in death. But he says instead this, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, what, Timothy, what Paul's doing for Timothy here is a very nice thing. He's not just being annoying. And I think it's sometimes annoying for you and I when we are walking in the Christian walk together and we are with each other and we see something in the other person's life and we're like, oh, you probably shouldn't be involved with them because they're up to no good. Oh, you probably shouldn't talk to that person. because, And then you're like, leave me alone. Like, I'll talk to whoever I want to talk to. Right? It, it could have been easy for Timothy to feel that way, to be like, look, like, give me a little space. Like, I'm, I'm doing my thing. But what Paul's doing here is he's acting like a loving father. He's acting like someone who would care for young Timothy. This is, uh, I'm obsessed with, like, safety when, when, when I'm with my kids. Like, if I'm not with my kids, I'll do the dumbest stuff. Uh, but if, but when I'm with them, like, I'm, they're, they're enjoying and having a good time, and I'm looking up, like, 100 yards ahead, you know, 50 yards ahead. I'm seeing, like, oh, there's a branch about to fall, and there's a rattlesnake, like, like all of that stuff. Like, they're here, and I'm, like, I have my peripheral vision, but I'm looking far up ahead. So that way, by the time they get there, I have time to warn them and say, oh, like, don't go up there. Like, see that, you know, that tiger lying in the bushes. Like, you let's go back the other way. Like, I'm paying attention, so that way they can have a good time. And this is essentially what, what Paul is doing. He's, he's looking up ahead. He's seeing the pitfalls. He's seeing the danger that's there. And he's saying, hey, let's keep going, but just pay attention to these things that are up here. Okay, let's move, let's move together. Let's go. This is what, he, what he's pointing out. And notice how Paul then instructs him. He doesn't just say, like, I see these dangers. And so, like, you know, maybe, like, just when you go by the tiger, don't pet him. He says, like, no, let's run. Let's get out of here. He says, he tells Timothy, flee these things. Like, there's no reason to stick around them. He gives him specific instructions. Right? What are we to be fleeing? Controversy, quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, the desire to be rich, the love of money. These are all things that we find in, you know, verse 4, 5, 10. But it's not just that Paul says, well, I see these dangers, and you should run away, run away, run away. But instead, what he does is what a good father also does. He doesn't say, like, oh, it's all super danger over, dangerous over there. He's like, he says, instead, let me take you to another place, a better place. I, w- I want you to see that there's danger over there, but I'm not just going to say, like, okay, well, good luck out there in the meantime. He says, there's danger over there, but let me show you where it's good. Let me show you where it's safe. Let me show you where there's a place where you can flourish. And you can, you can come and, uh, and play and enjoy yourself without worry. And so in response to these fleeing, fleeing these things, uh, he tells him this, to pursue righteousness. The life of a Christian is not just one 
of running away from evil things. Too often that's like our case, like bad things run away, bad things run away, bad things run away. It's not just a, a, a negative response that we are to have, but also a positive response. Anytime we run away from something, that means we're running to something else. What then are you running to? We are running to Christ every time. Don't just flee evil things, but then we should also pursue righteousness. Jesus explains this very simply in his parables uh, where he says, oh, you know, imagine that there's this guy who's demon-possessed and he gets cast out. If, if, uh, if the, the spirit doesn't come in and fill that man, then he's going to get overtaken again by the enemy. He's like, it's not just enough to clean house and get something out. You have to fill it with, uh, with good, with righteousness. And here, this is what uh, his point is. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We aren't just to run from things, but we are to move toward righteousness. Look at Romans 13, verse 14. Uh, Paul writes, Therefore, let us cast off the work of darkness, and then let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So there's putting off, but then put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So he says, put off unrighteousness, put off the work of darkness, but put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says this uh, in the inverse. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So he says, get rid of the lust of the flesh, walk in the Spirit. It's not just get rid of one, but it's you have to participate in the other. Lastly, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's not one or the other, it's both. Do not be conformed to this world. Get rid of the world. Transform your mind. They happen at the same time. When one thing moves out, the good moves in. The righteousness moves in. Pursue righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Timothy was to make these things his pursuit. Not just to uh, flee evils, but to pursue these things that are valuable to the Lord. When you pursue righteousness, it will lead to these other uh, behaviors that he lists out here. Godliness being like God, revering God, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Faith, which is, you know, like the highest level one there. Faith. A belief in God, trusting in God, resting in God, growing in faith. This doesn't just mean like, oh, you like think good thoughts and believe the right things about God, but rather you trust in him for salvation. 
You look to him. You are hoping in him. Not hoping in the I hope this works out sense, but like I hope, I'm hoping in him because you're the only thing that I know for sure will work. You are my rescue. You are my hope. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you need faith. And Paul tells us the way that you get faith is to pursue righteousness. To chase after the Lord. Pursue righteousness and you have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And how then do you have faith? How then do you pursue righteousness? With the word of God. By knowing God. By seeing his character. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing. Here's how you generate it. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So you get the word of God. It goes into you. You hear the word of God. As you see God's faithfulness, then you develop faith in his faithfulness to you. And when you see that he will be faithful to you, then you grow in trust and faith that he will keep his word and that what he has done uh, will satisfy God's demands. And when you live in that way, we see that without faith it's impossible to please him. When you live in that way and you trust in Christ for salvation and you're demonstrating that faith, what you're actually doing is saying that it's Jesus who is pleasing the Lord, and you're finding your, your safety, your security in Christ. The third thing we find here is that this righteousness will lead to love. Agape love, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The entirety of your being. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Not just a part, not just a little bit, but Pursuing righteousness allows you to see God's love towards you and God's love towards others and transforms the, the basic human type of love that we tend to generate into a God-glorifying, unconditional love that can only be generated out of his character. You can't have that love on your own. Then we also see steadfastness and gentleness here listed. Being patient, being kind, being gentle uh, with one another. After receiving this, this exhortation to live in this way, to pursue righteousness and to flee from evils, Paul then roots his arguments in the mindset of a soldier. He says this, verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see what he does here? He says, fight the good fight of faith because Paul isn't confused. He knows that this is going to be hard. He's not like, well, just make that exchange and you can go home and relax. No, he says, you have to fight the good fight of faith because he knows it's going to be difficult. He knows it's going to be hard. He knows it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be easy for no one. 
It's war. Fight the good fight of faith. You're going against the world. You're going against Satan. You're going against your flesh. It's not going to be easy. And so you have to be determined, right? And then he, he, he uh, emphasizes this determination that he needs to have in two ways. First, in his calling, and then the confession that Timothy has to make and has, has made. He says this, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the mindset that we need. This is the mindset that we need in order to take hold of eternal life. Here's what it says. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. It means here's the end. Here's the goal that eternal life is in Christ. It's knowing him, enjoying him, being with him. And when you see that that is promised to you, that it's, you see that it's the end, that this is where all things end up, then now you say, I know what I'm going to get at the end. Now I just have to go get it. I know that it's mine in Christ. Now I just have to make my way to the end. A lot of times, in the way that we live our life now, is we don't know the end. We don't know the end. We start going uh, into these different avenues of moving to a new area or getting a new job or taking a certain set of classes or pursuing a certain major hoping, just wishing that our grades are going to be good enough or, or that we're going to end up with the right promotions or we're going to end up meeting the right people along the way. And we're thinking that if we, do just, we just do the right things, when we get to the end, we're going to get what we're after. Instead, Paul here says, here's what you're going to get at the end. Eternal life. All you have to do is keep going. You need to just have the determination of the soldier to keep marching on. You just keep going, you're going to get there. It's already there. That is the end. That's the goal. It's already guaranteed to you. Take hold of eternal life. It means get rid of, of, of the grip that the world has on your life. If you're holding on to other things, how are you going to grab onto eternal life? This is the analogy that he's given. If you're gripping the world so tightly... And, and eternal life is right there and it belongs to you and it's who you are. If you're holding this, you can't grab onto something else. So he says, you let go, open your hands, let go and renounce the things of the world, the things that you're pursuing, get rid of them, open your hands up and grasp onto Christ. Grasp Jesus and take what is yours in Christ. Verse 13, he says this, I charge you, In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of, Christ, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this goes to like the ultimate level. Not only does Paul say, oh, you're a soldier. Not only does Paul say, you have already made this, you're already called to this, we know what the end is. Not only is it you've already confessed this yourself, but then Paul kicks it up a level. He goes to the next highest level, as if Timothy is standing there in the lineup before the general, receiving orders, and Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God, 
As if God is there overseeing his troops and Timothy is there and Paul is acting there like the general saying, okay, here it is. And you see the high command are here and they are watching what you're doing and here are the orders that are given to you. I charge you in the presence of God. He gives orders. He emphasizes the same orders to Timothy to fight this hard fight, difficult fight. And he does it on the basis of God's positioning, that he's being charged in the presence of God, but then he does, again, by reminding him of who God is. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things. He says, Timothy, here's the deal. I'm charging you in the presence of God to do what you're called to do, to take hold of the eternal life, to operate according to your calling. If you're in uh, under the Lord's command, then you should obey his command. If you're under his authority, you should obey his th- authority. And finally, he says, if you are his creation and he's the creator, you should obey what the creator says to do. He roots it in the created order. God is the creator. He's the creator of all things. So if you, Timothy, are tempted to pursue these evil things that were listed out, if you're tempted to pursue these other doctrines or cravings for controversy or quarrels about other words, or you're tempted to, uh, to seek after uh, you know, these dissensions and slander, evil suspicions, loving money, if you're tempted for any of those things, Timothy says, those things aren't going to bring you gain. Because you're, you're a creation. And the creator, he's sovereign over all. He commands all things. This is a mindset that is important for us in our day and age. To remember that there is a divide, a clear divide, between the creator and creation. And it's an important divide for us to recognize in our time because in our community, in our conversations, in the people that we interact with, they believe themselves to be the masters of their own lives. That they are the highest authority in their own lives. And the scriptures tell us that God is the creator. God is the one who is sovereign over all. People have a hard time believing that there is a creator that they have to be accountable to. That they must honor. And then when they go and they live their own way and things aren't working out for them and they're experiencing hardship and difficulty and hurt... They're going through these things and experiencing them. And it's all come about because they've desired to go and do their own thing. This is exactly what happened in the book of Judges at the end. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But when we say that there is a purpose, there is a creator who has ordained all things who works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then we see that God is working even in the bad things that we experience. 
It's important that we have this mindset that there is a created order and that we are creation and that we do operate according to this. That we entertain this in our mind that we, when we're experiencing hardship and difficulty, we can say, it's okay because I'm creation. I'm not the, the captain of the ship. I'm not the master of my soul. There is another who rules and reigns over me. I know for me, more often than not, I get into conversations with people and, uh, you know, one way or the other, the idea of karma comes up like, oh, you know, like, that happened to them. Bad stuff happened to them because, you know, they did bad stuff. You know, you can't have both. There's these people who really want to do just like the limited karma. They're like, oh, bad stuff happened to them because they were bad people. But then if bad stuff's happening to, the, to like the people you're talking to, it's like, oh, you must be a really bad person because <laughs> bad things are happening to you. But that's not what they ask. They say, why is this happening? Because they think, they, their hearts are designed in a way where they think there must be a reason. Like, I don't understand why I'm going through this. There must be hope in the midst of these difficulties. There must be something more. It's that ache that we have to recognize that we are creation and there's a creator. This is what Paul does for Timothy. He says, your creation, there is a creator. And then he emphasizes this. He gives Timothy an example in case he's thinking like, okay, this is going to be uh, really hard, really difficult to, to do, to be the soldier who fights the good fight. He says, Timothy, you've already made this confession and you're already called to this. But he's like, but there is another. There is another who has already done this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he's like, Jesus has already done this. So if you want the perfect pattern, the perfect example of what a good confession looks like, he says, Paul says, Timothy, look at Jesus. Jesus knew the truth about himself. He knew who he was. He confessed uh, as as. Uh, Pilate was there and he said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. Boom. Done. Next thing. He says, uh, Jesus was the one who, before Pilate, recognizes that he's not, uh, that, that God is in control over all things and that Pilate's control is just a facade. Right? But Jesus isn't answering his questions and uh, uh, Pilate's questions there at the trial and Pilate's like, oh, how come you're not answering me? And he's like, don't you know I have the authority to release you? And Jesus tells him in John 19, you would have no authority, authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. He's there confessing the sovereignty of God over all things. He's like, God's in charge. You're not in charge. You just think you're in charge. Jesus testifies. He confesses makes his good confession before Pilate in a way that leaves a pattern for Timothy to see. And so when Paul says, hold fast, make the good confession, he says, all he's basically saying here is live like Jesus, do what Jesus did. Be faithful. Keep the commandment unstained and free from the reproach from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. How long is he to do this for? 
until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Morale tends to run low when you don't, when you don't see action. You're out there on the battlefield and it doesn't feel like things are going so well. And you get a little bit bored and it's like, oh, when are we going to go home? When is this going to be over? When, do I have, when can I stop fighting? I'm, I'm like really just sick of like being on guard all the time. But there's a proper time, and what Paul says is that God knows it. He will come, he will appear at the proper time. Not before, not after, at the right time. Exactly when he's supposed to. Until then, Paul says, endure. Dig in and fight. He will appear at the proper time. When you have that sort of mindset that there will be an end, it changes the morale a bit. You know that the end is near. You know that there will be a proper time. But when you are a soldier, how that time happens and how that comes about and how you act in the battlefield is all about having confidence in your leadership. How can I stick it out if I know that they're just back there doing this? Or, like, I don't, you know, maybe they're back there enjoying a nice meal and having a great time. Or, what, like, well, I don't know what's happening. And you're just out there on the front lines, freezing cold. And, you know, you got mud all over you. And you're in the trenches and you just hate everything. And you're just there ready to quit. You're just thinking like, oh, well, they're not really worried about it because they're like got the fireplace and they're like enjoying this cozy meal. And, you know, they got the maps and like maybe they're working on some stuff. But like we're the ones out here suffering. I think Paul knows that that's the mindset of all soldiers, because here's how he ends. Giving Timothy, giving us a glimpse of our leadership. Not ones who sit back. Our Lord is not one who has reserved himself from suffering, but entered into suffering to suffer with us, to bring us into his family. But ultimately, he pulls back and gives us a very big view of Jesus. Ending with the doxology here. This is meant now to give Timothy confidence, to inspire him, to strengthen his resolve. He says this. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul finishes saying here, we serve the one, we are under the authority, the leadership, the rule, and in the family of the one who is blessed and the only sovereign. Right? What Paul does there is he says, there's no one else who's, who's challenging God. There's no one else who's rivaling Jesus. One, one God, and no one's coming close. Right? No, there's no, no one else to challenge him. 
He alone has all power, all strength. He rules over the universe, and everything exists at his will. Everything exists at his will. He is the only sovereign over all. He is the highest that there is, the king of kings. The Lord of lords, the highest king cannot compare to him. The highest lord could not compare to him. The glory of Christ on display here. You trot out the best that the earth has to offer. The richest, smartest, most powerful people. They're not even close. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. All just pale in comparison next to the king, Jesus. Next to the Lord of eternity. No one comes close. He alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This is, this is emphasizing his holiness. That he is so pure, so perfect, that he's not just man, but also God. 100% man, 100% God without beginning and end. This is why he says he's the only immortal one. Eternal and immortal are different. He has no beginning and no end. Eternal, live on forever. Okay, don't be confused. Perfect, without beginning, without end, in pure glory. Paul says here, if he ever showed up in this unapproachable light, if we ever caught a glimpse, we'd all be just smoked. So perfect. Verse 5, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He says all of those things, and just like with the most simple statement, like, to how amazing God is. Like, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Like that's his, his one like four phrase statement. Right? It's like honor, eternal dominion. Amen. Just so simple, straightforward. Because what, what else are you going to say? The one time that we, we have, like not the one time, but we have this account of Isaiah who kind of catches a glimpse of like the glory of the Lord in the temple, and then all he's like, he just is like, I'm undone. Like, I have nothing to say. I can't, I, I, I got nothing. Paul manages to scrape together a tiny sentence here. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is what seeing Jesus should do for us. It should not just put us in a place where we're like, oh, that's cool. Like, you got some sweet superpowers, Jesus. But rather, it should evoke this sort of response. We're like, King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign, the only one ever, in unapproachable light. To him be honor and eternal dominion. This is how he ends because, again, what is he trying to help Timothy with here? Don't chase after earthly things, earthly gain. He says, Jesus is the end. Look how good Jesus is. What are you going to chase after an earthly game when you have the only eternal Lord who wants to enter into a relationship with you 
the question that you're asking there is not, oh, what can that guy do for me? But like, I want, I want to be with him. It changes our heart when we're like, oh, wow, like, I see now clearly how amazing you are. Not that like, oh, like, you're like a deluxe Santa. But like, I'm actually pursuing you. I want you because you're better than anything else I've ever experienced, known, seen. I see that you are the creator. And so it evokes this sort of response in us. That we are to be a worshiping people. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you have instructed us uh, through Paul's commands to Timothy. And Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts now as we've seen this charge to flee from these evil things, as we've heard the command, the charge that you've not only given to Timothy, but to us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, we want to do just that. And so, Lord, we want to take hold of that eternal life, the calling that you've called us to, We want to operate out of who we are. And you tell us that we belong to you. You tell us that you've made us your own and that we're not outsiders. Lord, but you have brought us near. As we are just creation and how small and insignificant we are, how how we're just a, a tiny just a tiny speck in the history of humanity, but yet, Lord, your word tells us that you know every hair upon our head. Your word tells us that you know our name and you have planned our lives and that you sustain each and every one of us. Lord, what intimacy we have with you as our creator. Thank you for sustaining us. And Lord, we want to now respond in worship. And so, Lord, move us. Move us to a place of acknowledging your worth, giving you glory and honor and praise. We love you. Amen.